Good morning. May we all stand this morning and read from God's word. Today from Philippians 1, 12 through 26. I want to know you, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by, my, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here, and it's really good to see all of you, especially good to see some of the people who are visiting perhaps for the first time this morning. Um, I'm looking forward to, to considering this passage together with you, to consider the joy of Easter with you. Um, but before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, you are here with us, and you promise that as we come and when we pray and when we turn our hearts to you, that you speak to us. And so we pray for that right now, that you, by your Spirit, would give us power to hear. Lord, we pray that you would make Jesus real to us, that you would make the reality of the resurrection transform our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I was growing up, I think I believed that the Bible didn't have a sense of humor. I've come to change my mind about that. There are some wonderfully ironic verses at the end of Matthew chapter 27, where you have the Pharisees worried about what might happen with the tomb, and so they talk to Pilate, and he, Pilate says to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make the tomb as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. If we know the story of Easter, we know what happens next. 
You know how early in the next morning there are a few women, Mary Magdalene, Salome, and another, who wake up early while it's still dark. They perhaps haven't even been sleeping because they are filled with grief because just a couple of days earlier, the leader that they love, that they admire, that they put all of their hope in was brutally, humiliatingly, agonizingly killed. But now is their opportunity to do the only thing they know how to if they want to show their love for Jesus. They, they go to the tomb because they want to put spices and oils to honor his body. And so we can imagine how it would be this early, crisp morning while the sky is getting lighter. And they were there at the tomb when he was buried. And so they know where, he is to go, where they need to go. And so they walk, but when they draw near, they stop and they're utterly confused. Because that stone that was sealed, that was guarded, that is too heavy for them to roll, has been rolled away. And they cannot understand why. And so they step in, trembling. And Jesus isn't there. Instead, there's, there's a man, actually, there is an angel. And this angel, as they, he recognizes just how scared they are in this moment, says, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, the one you are looking for, he is not here. He has risen. Jesus rose from the dead. This really, really happened. And it would really be worth our time to just spend some time considering why we can be convinced that this really happened. To think about the witnesses, to think about the empty tomb, to think about the incredibly improbable beginning of a church that exploded throughout the world. All of these things point to the fact that it is real. And on and, and previous Resurrection Sundays, we've done exactly that. But this morning, I want to do something slightly different. You know, a recent poll said that two-thirds of all Americans believe that Jesus truly rose from the dead. Now, that's down from the way it used to be, but still, that is a significant majority. But these same polls, when they ask different questions, found that a noticeably lower number of people pray regularly, attend church regularly, or consider religion an important part of their lives. And that, to me, signifies the fact that we, it's not just enough for us to understand that, that the resurrection is real. We also need to understand why the resurrection matters. I mean, why do we celebrate 2,000 years later the resurrection of one person? A number of miraculous things have taken place in the life of Jesus. A number of extraordinary things took place in the world. But this is the one that maybe more than almost any other is what gives us hope and joy. Why? Why is the resurrection important to us? Now, I, my guess is if I asked you this morning, many of you would answer something like this. The reason that this is such a joyful day is that Jesus put death to death. Because the thing that's so awful about death was that not only is there this, this physical death, which is a terrifying thing, but that before Jesus, there was no hope beyond death. 
The Bible speaks of us who are sinful people being under the judgment of God, but when Jesus died, he took away our sins. He took away the judgment, which means we don't need to be afraid of death anymore because Christ paid the penalty. We are forgiven by God, and we know that just as Jesus rose, we will one day rise. And that is a good answer, and that is true. But I actually want to push us beyond that because I think there's even more to resurrection than the fact that Jesus put death to death. Scripture teaches that not only did Jesus put death to death when he rose again, but when he rose again, he also gave life to life. That is, the resurrection, what Jesus done, his resurrection power enables us truly to live to experience what it is to be alive. I mean, what is it to live? What does it mean to truly be alive? You know, a few years ago, uh, the great wise poet Bon Jovi wrote, I mean, I grew up in the 80s, okay, I can't help this. He wrote, it's my life. Are you familiar with this wise words? It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. Now, you know, a lot of that's kind of silly, but that last line's really interesting, isn't it? I just want to live while I'm alive. I mean, what he is saying is something that I think all of us realize, that there is a way that we can be on this earth, we can be breathing, we can be conscious without truly living. That there is a real potential for us to walk through this world for 70 or 80 or 90 years and always just be sleepwalking without really experiencing what it is to be alive. So what does it mean to truly live while I'm alive? Well, the resurrection of Jesus answers that question for us. That God, when he rose Jesus from the dead, gave life to life. And that actually is at the very heart of the passage that Emily just read. When Paul is speaking to his dear friends in Philippi, he says four words that define what life is. Four words that if we understand them, truly understand them and allow them to shape us, it is no exaggeration to say that these words have the potential for utterly reworking our entire lives. And those four words are this, to live is Christ. That's what he says in verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. Experiencing life, truly experiencing life happens through the resurrection. It happens because of Christ. Now let me ask you, if we just kind of pause before thinking more about what Paul means, how might you answer that or finish that statement? If you were to say, for to me, to live is, and then you say honestly and openly what really life is for you. I was thinking about this for me. I was talking about this with some high schoolers last week or over our house about how when I was in high school, there was a pretty clear answer. For to me, to live was to have a girlfriend. It really was. Like, I remember, like, I mean, sure, I did homework, sure, I did sports, but man, I wanted a relationship, and everything was about figuring out how to be in a relationship. That was life for me. What about you? You know, we're in a kind of driven 
community if you haven't heard. So I wonder if at least some of you it might be for to me to live is my career. That you are constantly thinking about what you need to do for work. There's things that are always occupying your attention. There might be this desire that's driving you for things to get better and better. You might be consumed by your job. For you to live is to work. Or perhaps for others of you, if you're honest, for me, to live is family. I remember talking with a friend of mine a few years ago, and she said, you know, honestly, everything in my life is about my child. That, that is what matters to me more than anything else. For her, she was saying, to me, to live is family. Or maybe for you, it's not quite that concrete and specific. Maybe for you, if you're saying, you know, here's what it means for me to be alive. I just want to enjoy myself. I want to go through day in, day out, and experience as, as much happiness as I can. To me, to live is just to be happy. So here's what Paul would say to us. Whatever our answer is, if it is not for to me to live is Christ, then we don't really know what life is. We don't know how to live while we're alive. See, when Paul is saying for to me to live is Christ, he's not just expressing a preference. It's not like he's saying to me Pepsi is better than Coke or to me Rogue One is better than Force Awakens. It's not a preference. It's a paradigm. Saying, this is the way life is. For to me, to live is Christ, and it is also that for you, if only you would see it. And Paul comes by this awareness through something remarkable. He knows that he is right because he encountered the risen Christ. See, Paul wasn't always of this conviction. If you know anything about Paul's story, you'll know that before he came to see this, he was a driven, ambitious, career-focused person. I mean, career different from us. He was born into wealth. He had the best schooling possible in Jerusalem. He had a prestigious clerkship under a rabbi named Gamaliel. He was a workaholic. He was successful, and he was a rising star, and he was respected. And yet... Now, later on, when he's writing to this church in Philippi, he sees his life so differently. If we were to keep reading the letter a little bit later in chapter 3, here's what Paul says. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. My Lord. Do you hear he's saying? He's not just saying, well, when I look back, I realize, you know, that was, I don't know if I got a whole lot out of that. He's actually saying, when I look back, all that looked like success is actually in the negative. It's the deficit column. It was loss. I mean, maybe sometimes when you've gone out to see a movie, it's not just a mediocre movie. It's a bad movie. Where at the end you say, there are two hours of my life I am never getting back. Right? Paul looks back on his life and says, there are years of my life that I'm never getting back. It's not just that it wasn't great, it was loss because it kept me from the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Anything that stands in the way of Christ for me is loss because to live is Christ. Now, how did he shift his perspective? Well, it all happened rather dramatically. 
He was on what we might call a business trip to Syria. He was walking with some other people. And in this moment, suddenly, as he tells the story, there was a bright, overwhelming light. You know, I, I read, you know, thrillers and, you know, there are these flash grenades that are supposed to make these loud noises and have brightness that are so overwhelming that people have to just, like, get paralyzed because they're stunned. I think that's what's going on here, that there is so much brightness. It is so overwhelming to his senses that Paul just collapses on the ground with his face down, trembling, having no idea what's going on. And then he hears a voice. And he hears Jesus. Jesus, who is clearly no longer humiliated, crucified, dead. Jesus, who is now glorious, enthroned in heaven. Paul meets the risen Jesus. And when that happens, he realizes as he processes it over weeks beyond that, two main things. First, he realizes he was wrong. Because he had been opposing Christianity as he sought to uphold the law, and he was wrong because it's all real. But he also understood another thing, and that is that to meet the risen Jesus meant that God is doing something utterly remarkable. The resurrection was not just God kind of doing a do-over and erasing the mistake that humanity had made. It's God was pouring out new life through Jesus into this world. You know, Jesus, when he was in this world, said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And it's only at the resurrection that those words make sense. Because in the resurrection, it's like Jesus is some supernatural superconductor. He is filled with life. He is charged with life. And everyone who becomes connected to Jesus experiences that new life. They experience for the first time what it actually means to be alive. And that's what happened to Paul. When Paul came to know Jesus, he was made alive. Made alive to God for the first time in a way that he knows God in a way he never did before. Made alive to joy. Made alive to, to love. Made alive to this world. So you can say, there is nothing that compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And so here, right before he says, for to me to live is Christ, he says, my whole life is consumed by Jesus. He says, it is my eager desire that as now and always, Christ would be honored. And that word for honored literally means made much of. He's saying, my whole life is consumed by the desire to make much of Jesus. And he says that because he so admires, he so loves Jesus, and he's so convinced that that is what everyone else needs, that out of love for other people, he wants them to see Jesus. And in this conviction, he is filled. He has come to taste something he never knew before, and that is to live is Christ. You know, I, I suspect some of you this morning come here feeling kind of lost. You know, this is supposed to be a joyful day, but maybe if you are honest with yourselves deep down, and a place that you're not even willing to admit to anyone else, there is a sadness, a feeling of emptiness, a sense that there needs to be something more. 
I'm reminded of a movie a couple decades ago, maybe you've seen it, with Jack Nicholson, where he was in this therapist's office and he became so frustrated that he left and he went into the, the waiting room and he just asks randomly to everyone's there, what if this is all, what if this is as good as it gets? What if this is as good as it gets? Is that the question that you find yourself crying out? What if this is as good as it gets? And you feel despair about that idea. Let me ask you, could it be that it's because you haven't yet found out what it is to be alive? Could it be it's because you are saying for to me to live is career or family or relationships or just trying to enjoy myself when the only answer to life is for to me to live is Christ? Now I ask the question, why does the resurrection matter? Here is the answer. It matters about everything because Jesus rose. It completely redefines life. So there is not one bit of life that is not changed because of the resurrection. Now I realize that this is an extraordinary claim that scripture is making. And perhaps this morning you aren't convinced. Maybe you're intrigued. You're thinking about it. But it's asking everything of you. And I want to say that is okay. This is something that is so important that it takes time for us to be convinced of for many of us. And so let me encourage you, if you this morning are still trying to weigh whether this is true or not, that this might be where life is found in Jesus, let me encourage you to not just let your questions sit. It's too important for that. For the next few weeks, we are going to be continuing to work through the letter of Paul, of Philippians. And I want to ask you to stay with us and to continue thinking and hearing as Paul talks about what it means that to live is Christ and why it is that to live is Christ and why we can be convinced of that. But this morning in my remaining time, I want to just point out one reason we can be confident that it is true that to live is Christ. One reason that we see from Paul's life in this very passage that was read. And that is when we realize that to live is Christ, we are free to experience joy no matter what the circumstances. When we realize that to live is Christ and when we truly take hold of that, we are free to experience joy no matter what the circumstances. So just think about this for a moment. Whatever other answer we give for to me to live is, it is setting us up for sadness and disappointment and frustration. I mean, I lived this. You know, I talked about how for me, to me to live was having a girlfriend in high school, which meant, you know, my emotions were up and down and up and down and up and down. And I was a basket case, which is, you know, partly what it means to be in high school. <laughs> but it's not just high school, is it? I mean, let me ask you, if you are really, if you are honest and say to me to live is my career, if tomorrow you somehow found out that last week you made a terrible mistake that you weren't even aware of, a big one, cataclysmic, such that they're going to have to lay you off. And not only that, it's going to be a black mark on your resume forever. How would you handle that? If for to you, life is career, your life would collapse, wouldn't it? 
or for you to live is family? What happens when you find yourself suddenly in a conflict that doesn't get resolved with someone in your family who you care deeply about? Or, heaven forbid, but it does happen, of course, if, if someone close to you gets sick or even dies. Is there even any reason to keep living if that happens from your perspective? Or what do you do if your life is just about trying to enjoy yourself and you find that you are diagnosed with a chronic disease that is never going to make life easy again? What do you have to handle suffering if for you living is all just about enjoying yourself? You see, each of these, if we say to live is anything other than Christ, we are setting ourselves up for joylessness. We are purely victims of whatever the circumstances are. Now contrast this with what we see in Paul. You know, Paul, as he is writing to the Philippians, as he is giving them this counsel, he is in prison. He's in prison hundreds of miles away in Rome, and he is potentially facing the death sentence. And when we're saying prison, we should not just think about, like, bars that he's in. He's, he's, he is literally chained to two guards, day and night, each wrist is chained. Every four hours, guards switch, which means he is never, ever alone. I don't know if he's an introvert, but if it is, this is the introvert's worst nightmare that he's experiencing, right? But it's not just that he's uncomfortable. He has every reason to be frustrated. Paul is this motivated church planter. I mean, that's what he does. He goes to a place, he says hello, and boom, there's a church. I mean, that's how he works. He brought, brings people to Christ, and there's this congregation, and he is so strategic and ambitious. He says, my goal is to start from Rome and to take all of Spain next. And now he's in Rome, but there is no Spain for him. His career has completely come to an end, and it's likely he is never going to plant another church again. And it's even more than that. He alludes in these verses to the fact that there are some people in Rome who just don't like him. And so they're kind of excited. Even though they're Christians, they're excited that he's in prison because now is their opportunity to build a larger church and to take followers away from Paul so that Paul becomes less and less important. I mean, if you think about all of those details, what does Paul have left? He's almost completely alone with very few people on his side. He has no career to speak of. He has no comfort. If his life in any way depends upon his circumstances, he should be despairing. He, he might even be suicidal. But what does he say to the Philippian church? He's writing them because he knows that they're concerned. And so he says in verse 12, I want you to know. He's saying, I want you to know because I think he's worried that they're worried about him. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's like, friends, don't worry about me. Good things are happening. Yep, I am captive. But you know what that means? I have a captive audience. I mean, like, you know, like, I, basically every four hours, two new guys come and they have to hear me tell them about Jesus. And so you can see he's kind of like bragging. He's like, now the whole imperial guard knows about Jesus. And at the very end of chapter 4, there's this little note at the very end. All the people around here say that, send their greetings, including those from Caesar's household. In other words, those guards, some of them became Christians. This is great. And, and people are becoming more bold because they're recognizing that I'm doing okay, so other people are sharing about Jesus. And yeah, there are some people who are being kind of obnoxious about it, but you know what's happening? They're still talking about Jesus. And so I rejoice. 
I mean, that's literally what he says. I rejoice. These are not the words of someone whose world is falling apart around him. You know, a little, letter, a little later in this letter, Paul says to the Philippian church, I have learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. Isn't that a provocative statement? I have learned the secret of being content. I, I want to know that secret. I want to know the secret of being able to be content no matter what happens. And I think Paul is very clear here. Here's the secret. The secret is to live is Christ. And don't you see? Everything, everything else can be taken away from you. In fact, everything else will be taken away from you if at death, if not beforehand. But you will never, ever lose Christ. And if your life is in Christ, you will always be alive. Even when you die, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because he knows when he dies, he's even going to be closer to Christ. When Christ is our life, we are able to be joyful no matter what the circumstances. Because to live is Christ. You know, I, I want to just acknowledge something as we close, and that is that what we're seeing in the example of Paul is what I might call advanced Christianity. And what I mean by that is Paul has come by this conviction and this awareness through a lot of suffering in a way that makes him mature in a way that I know that I am not. It's a sense, to me, I feel like for us who are followers of Christ, we're on the same hike, but Paul is way further up the mountain. He's above the tree line, and he sees what we can't, and he's calling down to us and saying, this is what it looks like. Just keep going. I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I don't just get overwhelmed when something big happens, like a, a family illness or something. I, I get overwhelmed when my car won't start, or when I have an unexpected bill, or when I've slept late and I've missed a breakfast meeting. I feel like I'm just barely beginning to understand what it means that to live is Christ. But I do think I understand it a little better than I used to. Enough that I'm increasingly convinced this is true. Enough that I'm increasingly convinced that I want this to be what is true of me. How about you? Because here's the thing, Jesus really, he really did rise from the dead. And when he did so, he didn't just put death to death. He gave life to life. To live is Christ. You know, our church's tradition is after we have spent some time looking at God's word, we are all given a time just kind of silently to respond in whatever way is appropriate. For some of us, maybe here is an opportunity for us to confess to God how we've made things other than Christ our life. Or maybe for you this morning, here is the chance for you simply to talk to God and ask him to please show you if this is true. So I'd like to just give us some time to respond, talking to God about this, maybe to confess our sins, and then after that I will lead us in prayer. Would you please join us in silence prayer?
Heavenly Father, you know, you knew better than I do how it is very much true of me that I still do not fully, fully know what it means or fully even believe that to live is Christ. And Lord, I suspect I speak for many of us. Lord, you have given us life through the resurrection. You have given us everything. And yet we confess that so often we look elsewhere for life where life is not to be found. And so, Father, we ask that you would not only forgive us, but that you would revive us. We know that you have given us your Holy Spirit, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and our hearts to see. For some of us this morning, I pray that for the first time, like with Paul, you would open their minds and their hearts, that they might recognize that not only has Jesus risen, but that to live is Christ. Help us, Lord, to see, to all of us see this. And as we now come to the table, Lord, please reassure us of that reality that Jesus has destroyed death and given life to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel from Revelation chapter 5. And where the print is bold, I invite you to respond. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. By his blood, Christ has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation together. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.